Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. I hope everyone listening is doing well and keeping healthy. We have an important episode for you today, taking a deep dive into the state of Palestinian politics. A lot has happened over the past week in the Palestinian arena. Last week, donor countries met in Norway to discuss the Palestinian Authority's acute financial crisis. The Palestinian Authority's security forces launched a tentative campaign to instill order in the northern West Bank town of Jenin. And a Palestinian terrorist opened fire in Jerusalem's old city earlier this week, tragically killing one Israeli civilian and wounding four others. To help us unpack where things may be headed, we have a great guest today, Adam Razgon, a Jerusalem-based reporter, most recently of the New York Times, and for my money, one of the best Palestinian affairs journalists out there. Adam, welcome. Uh, thanks, Neri. Uh, that's very kind of you. Uh, it's well-deserved and well-earned. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. So just a note for our listeners, we're recording this early Tuesday morning, wintry Tel Aviv time. Uh, if anything new happens between now and when this episode goes up, uh, that's why we haven't touched on it. But uh, Adam, I'd like to start with the latest events and work our way backwards. Uh, as most of you probably have heard, uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, on Sunday morning, uh, there was a terror attack. A 42-year-old Palestinian preacher and educator from the Shuafat refugee camp in East Jerusalem uh, opened fire in the old city on Sunday morning uh, near the entrance to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and the Western Wall. Uh, Adam, this was right near your old flat in the old city. So just set the table for us and describe the area uh, where this attack took place. And we can get into a conversation about what to make of this attack, because uh, this individual, uh, 42-year-old, uh, admittedly a Hamas member, doesn't really fit the usual profile uh, of a Palestinian attacker. He's uh, older and more established. Uh, so what do you make of it? Yeah, so just to set the scene, uh, the attack occurred kind of in the heart of the old city. Um, it was very close to one of the 12 open entrances to the Temple Mount or the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, uh, specifically the chain gate uh, entrance. It's really the entrance that's sort of adjacent to the, um, the Western Wall where hundreds, thousands of Jews will go to pray every day. Um, it's also right next to what's known as uh, Chagai Street or in Arabic, Al-Wad Street. It's the, mm -hmm. the, the road that connects the Damascus Gate um, with the, the entrance to the Western Wall. Um, it's really in the heart of everything. Uh, it's also what some people might call a friction point because there's a border police sort of headquarters, the headquarters for the, for the Israeli border police in the old city is uh, right there. It's actually in an old Turkish bath. Uh, I actually one mm. time interviewed uh, along with uh, my former colleague, David Halfinger, the commander of the border police in the old city. And we were, I think we were sitting in like the sauna of this old Turkish bath, <laughs> <laughs> but uh uh, it's, it's, it's really in the thick of things. It's, there's also a police checkpoint right before you can, uh, right. it's about a hundred to 200 meters before you actually get to the entrance to the temple Mount. And the police are always standing there checking that, you know, if you're not 
Muslim, you're not supposed to enter through uh, the, this specific entrance along with just about every other entrance, um, except for the one that's uh, next to the, the Western Wall, um, sort of in the same area, the, Mo the Mugrabi Gate. And mm -hmm. um, generally, they're, they're stopping people, checking their IDs. I actually lived in an apartment briefly uh, that was subletted to me um just beyond this checkpoint so oftentimes i would walk by and i'd be stopped and i think i was always confusing the police officers because sometimes i would be on the phone in, in arabic and then other times in english and then in hebrew they were confused whether or not they needed to to stop me but uh <laughs> but it's definitely in the heart of the old city it's a place where lots of tourists will walk there are a lot of like right. juice sellers and um souvenir shops and it's really close to one of the main entrances to the, to the or actually two of the main entrances to the Western Wall. So it's it's very much in the thick of things, and people from all different walks are are are, are, are passing through. Right. It's the really the main thoroughfare of the Muslim quarter in the old city. Connects uh, Damascus Gate to, like you said, uh, the Temple Mount, uh, the Haram al Sharif compound, and uh, the Western Wall. Uh, and it's known uh, tragically in the past as a place of of either stabbing attacks or shooting attacks. So uh, in and of itself, it wasn't anything that out of the ordinary. Uh, we should mention last week there was an attempted stabbing attack uh, near that near that location in the old city. Uh, so these things have happened, but this particular attack has worried uh, the Israeli authorities. Uh, like I said, the attacker doesn't quite fit the normal profile. Uh, he is a Hamas member, uh, but also, I would say, a more prominent individual in the Shu'afat refugee camp in, uh, in East Jerusalem, right? Yeah. So um, he was a member of Hamas. Um, Hamas's sort of organizational structure in the West Bank is much more opaque compared to Gaza or the diaspora. Uh, in general, the public knows far less about exactly the rankings and the organizational leadership and and so on in, in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, uh, including the Shu'afat refugee camp where he's from. But uh, mm -hmm. he certainly seems like he was an ideologue. Um, I saw this morning that Ynet, um, a leading Israeli, a centrist Israeli uh, news site, uh, had reported mm -hmm. that he left behind a will where he sort of explained that he, you know, believed this was a, the path he wanted to take, that he was going to uh, have a meeting with God and sort of really laying out and making clear that 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 he you know felt strongly about uh, his Islamist ideology. Right, and therein therein lies the concern, right, that he's not only a prominent member of uh, in Shuafat and amongst East Jerusalemites, but that uh, maybe his students or other members of the community might take inspiration, uh, what the Israelis call copycat attacks. Yeah. So in general, as you mentioned. A lot of attacks over the past couple of years have been stabbing attacks, and many of them have failed. And usually by, we should, we should mention for our listeners, usually by, let's say, younger Palestinians, maybe more on the periphery of Palestinian society, uh, maybe having familial uh, troubles at home, personal troubles. Uh, this, this seemed a bit more thought through, and it comes from, a, like we said, an older individual uh, with a family, with kids. Certainly, yeah. I mean, just last week that failed stabbing attempt that that you mentioned uh which took place nearby i believe that was carried out by a 16 year old uh this individual mm -hmm. uh, according to reports is 42 years old 
Um, and he was someone who preached, I believe, at the El Aqsa Mosque. Um, he was sort of an established uh, sort of sort of person studying, uh, uh, you know, at, at the mosque. Um, I think his profile is pretty unique. In general, we don't see people in the 40s and above uh, carrying out these attacks. It does happen from time to time, but uh, it's it's certainly a, a more, it's a rare instance. Right. No, it, it's rare. And this is, again, why the Israelis are concerned. And so there's a heightened uh, alert issued for Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, uh, but also the West Bank. Uh, I neglected to mention that you know, I think the the nature of this attack, uh, the, this individual having uh, a submachine gun and killing an individual and injuring four others, including some seriously, uh, you know, that's such that's a unique circumstance in which um, sometimes when we see incidents uh, or attacks that are so successful, uh, that really has a, a much greater chance of inspiring others to to carry out attacks to follow in his footsteps. So um, I know Israeli security officials are often emphasizing that point um, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, many times they'll foil such attacks before they take place and, you know, things will fizzle out without anything happening. But when something's so successful, you know, oftentimes in the, in the weeks and even in the days following, we'll see sort of a, 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 a series of other uh, attacks taking place. Right. Yeah, we've seen uh, what the Israelis like to call uh, waves of violence. So one attack begets another attack, especially, like you said, if they're deadly and quote-unquote successful, uh, others take inspiration from that. So there's a heightened uh, alert issued for Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, uh, but also the West Bank. Uh, so that's a, a good transition. Uh, we'll see what happens in the coming days and weeks and primarily in Jerusalem, the old city, if we have repeat attacks like this. Uh, but in the West Bank, too, things aren't that calm. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, the uh, Palestinian Authority and its security forces have launched uh, at least a tentative security campaign in the northwestern city of Jenin. Uh, Jenin famously uh, not not really under the writ, shall we say, of of the Palestinian Authority, uh, especially the refugee camp in Jenin. It's a, a bastion of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, renegade gunmen and, and militant groups from the Fatah party, uh, also Hamas. So it seems like uh, like Ramallah, right, uh, wants to at least get a try to get a grip on events in Jenin, uh, and also Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, Last week, fired most of his security chiefs in Janine who apparently weren't weren't getting the job done. Uh, what do you make of this uh, at least nascent security campaign in Janine? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, Janine is definitely, or the Janine refugee camp uh, in particular, which is sort of in the center of Janine. Um, it's definitely one of those pockets of uh, the West Bank, and I know you've written extensively about this scenario, especially on your writings about the Palestinian security forces. But it's one of those pockets in the West Bank that, you know, there's a high degree of lawlessness historically. The Shuafat refugee camp where the attacker in Jerusalem is from is another uh, Hebron, um, certainly the old city in Hebron, uh, uh, and, and certain other places around the West Bank where... A la, a la Marie camp 
Niramala and Balata and, and Nablus, right. these famous kind of ex-territories where the writ of the Palestinian Authority doesn't quite extend. Right, exactly. And uh, yeah, so um, Janine's one of those places. Recently, there was a funeral for the former Minister of Prisoner Affairs, um, who was actually the Minister of Prisoner Affairs when Hamas led the Palestinian Authority government briefly back in uh, 2006. Um, his name is Wasfi Qubha, um, and he's a respected figure among Hamas and the West Bank. Uh, of Hamas's sort of public leaders, a number of them actually come from Janine. Um, many others will come from Hebron, but like Janine is definitely one of the the, the bastions of Hamas's um, you know support. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that Janine's a, a town where the majority supports Hamas, but they have a significant amount of support there. So there was this funeral. I would, you know, thousands of people turned out, possibly tens of thousands, uh, depending on how you sort of look at the the photos of the of the funeral. But a, a very large number, and this is significant because in the West Bank, in general, when there's a protest, uh, even during the Trump era, when you know the embassy was moved or funds were cut off to the Palestinian Authority or to UNRWA, um, lar you know, most of the protests. Were, were, were quite small. So, uh, you know, it's it's always notable when you see tens of thousands of people turn out to the streets. Right. And I think President Abbas and the leaders of the Palestinian security forces, especially Majid Farage, the head of the intelligence, uh, the general intelligence services, were, were upset that Hamas had such a strong showing of force. Even if all the people who turned out weren't Hamas members, you know, they were turning out to a funeral of the former minister of prisoner affairs, who was a prominent mm -hmm. Hamas leader himself. Um, and they were upset about that. So Abbas decided to, to reassign a number of the security chiefs in Janine. So he sent them to other governorates or other provinces in the West Bank and to appoint new ones. And they've now um, started, you know, what I would call a security campaign in Janine, where they're going uh, into the camp, uh, you know, in, in the night, um, but not sort of in, with plainclothes intelligence officers as they as they as they may if they're just going to arrest one person. But, you know, with armored vehicles and uh, lots of, you know, national security forces, uh, reinforcements and, and others and, right. you know, engaging in armed clashes and, right. uh, you know, facing, right control. Yeah. Right. Control and facing you know, dozens of rock throwers. Um, and obviously these images are very hard for uh, the PA in general to swallow, you know, uh, to, to see the, the public in Janine, which one night might be throwing rocks at the Israeli uh, um, army uh, during a raid. Uh, the next night is throwing rocks at mm -hmm. the Palestinian Authority. Um, it's a bad look. Yeah. Um, I think for a boss who already has, you know, a very low approval rating, uh, I think record uh, lows now. Uh, I know you mentioned in in one of your recent articles that his his latest numbers were, you know, the Shikaki and the Khalil Shikaki, a prominent pollster in Ramallah, found that seventy eight percent or seventy seven percent. I can't remember the exact number of the Palestinian public was calling for him to resign. Um, but you know, when you have incidents like this where the the young public of Janine's refugee camp, which is considered to be like, 
you know, at least for Palestinians, a place where, you know, um, the the resistance to Israel's military rule kind of like holds strong, uh, you know, fighting the mm-hmm. PA, it's, 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 it's not boding well for their popularity. Right. Uh, we should also mention that the Janine refugee camp in particular isn't a place that the Israeli military and security forces find all that easy to operate in. Uh, and especially over the past, say, six months yeah. to 10 months, uh, nearly every, almost every raid uh, and arrest operation by the Israelis into into the Janine refugee camp has been met with live gunfire, right. which, uh, which, you know, isn't that uncommon in the West Bank, but it's not as common as maybe people imagine. So right. uh, the IDF finds it difficult to operate in Janine. Uh, it remains to be seen how effective the Palestinian authorities, security forces, uh, and its campaign will be in Janine. Uh, I think politically, though, it is interesting that this seems to be a, uh, if not a turning point, then a shift in policy by Abbas, right? That especially in the spring and really during and after the May-Gaza war, uh, it seemed like Abbas and the Palestinian Authority was actually trying to to keep its head down, uh, not to at least openly clash with Hamas uh, in the West Bank, uh, Hamas was riding high, as we all know, uh, after its 11-day war with Israel. Yeah. Uh, and so it really did seem that the Palestinian Authority and, and its security forces uh, were kind of laying, laying a bit lower, uh, biding their time. Uh, Hamas, like you said, with that uh, demonstration and funeral for the deceased official, uh, was raising its head in turn. Yeah. And its profile in the West Bank arguably was higher uh, in recent months, and it had been in years. So it is interesting, at least to my mind, the political context to all this, and that Abbas may be uh, maybe trying to put the Hamas uh, genie back in the bottle uh, in the West Bank. Uh, do you see it the same way? Yeah, I mean, largely I do. I think Abbas, uh, under the Trump administration, felt that he had no options, and um, you know he took part in this initiative. Uh, that started, I would say, before Biden came into office, and it wasn't entirely clear like who was going to win the U.S. election. This initiative to hold right, le- legislative year. elections and uh, and presidential elections, but but starting with legislative and then presidential, I think that was Abbas sort of suggesting that he had Hamas as an option to go with them to to move further down the path of reconciliation. But the moment that Biden won, uh, I think it was pretty clear that any sort of um, re-engagement with Hamas wasn't going to take place. Uh, I, you know, a, a lot of people thought that these elections were going to take place uh, in, in April. Um, I'm sorry, in May. They haven't taken place in, what, 15 years in the Palestinian territories. Exactly. But a lot of people thought this time it would happen because Abbas issued a decree. This time it would be different. Exactly. And, you know, he issued a decree uh, which stated a date for the elections and the commission had started, you know, uh, collecting the, the list and the list were going to be published and um, there was going to be an opportunity for candidates to do campaigning. Uh, he ultimately canceled them, uh, in my opinion, because uh, he feared um, sort of the, fract- the, the consequences of the fracturing of Fatah, but also Hamas benefiting um, from a, you know a fractured Fatah and, and, and 
increased mm -hmm. popularity. Um, and then this war happens uh, in May that that you mentioned. Uh, that you know sort of isolated Abbas. It, it it for at least the time of the war, it made him essentially irrelevant. Abbas really didn't appear much at all during the war. Um, I, he decided to to keep quiet for the most part. I think he maybe gave one or two public comments. But after the war, you know, he's been visited by senior U.S. officials, including Blinken and others, and I think he feels re-empowered um, in, 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 to a certain extent. And, you know, I think he wanted to crack down or push back against the gains that Hamas had made during the war. Um, and so any sort of public representation that Hamas makes in the West Bank, uh, it seems that the PA security forces are there to, to, to undermine it. And it wasn't only this funeral. I think just yesterday or the day before, there was a Palestinian prisoner affiliated with Hamas who was returning home after a stay in Israeli prison. And um, mm -hmm. the, the people who were welcoming him were waving uh, you know, the green Hamas flag. Um, and the PA security forces showed up and confiscated the, or, or forced them to stop waving the, the flags. Um, so uh, it seems like you know this is a clear effort by Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, to essentially push back to to raise its head, as as you mentioned. Right, uh, as the Israelis like to say, to to raise yeah. their head. So we need to uh, to lower their head. Uh, just tie up this this bit about uh, Mahmoud Abbas and his rule. Uh, so he's been in power now for what, 16 years? Yeah. Uh, he's 86 years old. Uh, no signs really of him uh, exiting the stage. Uh, definitely, like you said, elections were, were called and then canceled. Uh, they don't seem to be on the agenda anytime soon. Uh, but it also, we've seen, let's say over the past year and a half, it's not just the elections that certain decisions coming out of the Mukata presidential compound in Ramallah have been, at least to my mind, uh, a bit confounding, some would say erratic. Uh, so last year he tried to push back against uh, Donald Trump and former Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, and he severed ties with Israel. Uh, he then, you know, called for these elections, went down the path of reconciliation with Hamas uh, until he canceled those uh, earlier this year. Uh, there was also the incident this past summer where his security forces uh, went and arrested and then murdered uh, a prominent dissident in Hebron, uh, Nizar Banat. Uh, so all of this together, as somebody who uh, closely follows both Palestinian politics and Mahmoud Abbas himself, what what should we make of the quality of decision-making coming out of the Mukata these days? Yeah, so I mean, first I would say, you know, Abbas is, is quite old. Um, there's a debate over when his birthday is, but um, his official website right. says it's November 15th, which was last week. Um, so I guess technically, yeah, tough. I guess technically he's now 85 or 86. Um, uh, and the others believe it's in March, but he's very old. I, from what I understand, he comes into the office in the morning for about four hours. And then he goes home for, he has lunch and then the naps, and then he comes back in the evening for three to four hours. Um, he's, a lot of his decision-making is um, heavily influenced and almost being delegated to his two closest advisors. Um, one is Majid Faraj, the head of the intelligence services, and another is Hussein al-Sheikh, who's 
the, a senior member of Fatah. He's also the lead person who liaises with Israel, um, technically on civil matters, but he's also discussing security and other issues with, with Israel um, right. on a regular basis and, and has close contacts with not only Israeli security officials, but, but ministers, uh, including Benny Gantz and, um, and, and others. Um, so uh, whenever we see these decisions being made, oftentimes they're, they're a manifestation of Majid Faraj's or uh, um, Hussein al-Sheikh's interests just as much as they are uh, Abbas's. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think Abbas has sort of been looking throughout his career to find a way to deliver um, what he's always promised uh, the Palestinian people, a state. And, you know, he's mm-hmm. always sort of tried to lean on other people to do that. He's hoped the U.S. will pressure Israel into making concessions and to bring in about a two-state solution. When that hasn't worked, he's turned to reconciliation. But he's always been incredibly distrustful of Hamas. I remember when um, there was a, one of the, the more recent significant efforts for reconciliation. I think it was back in 2017 when the Palestinian prime minister went to Gaza for the first time in, in, in many, many years. Um, it was Rami Hamdallah at the time. Abbas gave an interview to Egyptian television. Um, and he's like, well, uh, Hamas is, you know, part of the Muslim Brotherhood and, you know, they're like they're mm-hmm. Islamists. And he was trying to sort of almost pour cold water on the whole thing. Like he didn't believe that this really could happen, even as this reconciliation process was taking place. Um, uh, I think he's always been distrustful of Hamas. He's always said one weapon one, uh, you know, uh, rule of law, law. Uh, one authority. Um, and that's something that, you know, uh, maybe Hamas would accept if, if it's really able to do a power sharing arrangement with the PA, but Abbas is not going to accept, uh, you know, Hamas's way of governance of uh, engaging with Israel, which is, you know, often clashing and in, in, in co- conflict and uh, violence. Right. So, so the reconciliation path hasn't worked out either. And, you know, obviously the Trump administration, uh, you know, made things quite impossible for Abbas and it took away some of the, the things that at least, you know, had been a part of the status quo, um, you know, the aid, the UNRWA funding, the, you know, having the embassy in Tel Aviv and not in Jerusalem. Um, you know, condemnations uh, on a regular basis. They say nothing of a peace plan that called for annexation of all the settlements and a paltry bit of uh, a nominal symbolic bit of East Jerusalem as uh, Palestinian capital. Exactly. And at the end of the day, Abbas, you know, tried to pull what some may call the doomsday card or like, you know, to, to take the apocalyptic route which was to cut off security ties with Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the end, he didn't fully cut off ties. Um, This is when Netanyahu threatened annexation uh, back in 2020 uh, at the tail end of the Trump administration. But, uh, you know, even there, Abbas, you know, wasn't able to fully go through. And I remember interviewing Hussein al-Sheikh with, 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 again, with uh, my former boss, uh, David Halfinger. Um, And we were asking him, you know, like, how exactly is, what, what does it mean that security coordination has been cut off? Does this mean that like if someone's planning an attack 
you know, from a Janine and you know about it or you're not going to inform the Israeli side. He's like, oh, no, we're just going to tell the UN. So, you know, <laughs> they, he never was willing to go fully through uh, with any any of these right. threats. And ultimately, um, I think, you know, today uh, he's, He's 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 happy to to be dealing with a U.S. administration that's not Trump. Um, he's upset. I think that he's not getting the treatment that Naftali Bennett is getting. He's not getting phone calls to the same extent as Bennett. He's not right. getting uh, meetings at the White House. Um, you know, the National Security Advisor isn't calling Majid Farage every other week. Um, but uh, yeah, he is thrilled that that Trump is out of office, and you know, he believes he defeated the you know the the greatest threat to the Palestinian national cause which was the Trump peace plan and um, he's also happy mm -hmm. I think at least for now with that the new Israeli government is open to more engagement with the Palestinian Authority um, you know right. obviously in public he's gonna continue to um, sort of make some of the familiar demands that we've always heard. And at the UN, he said that he wanted Israel to end its occupation in a year. And if it doesn't, um, you know, there will be severe, severe consequences. Right. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if, if he says something and, you know, uh, he extends the, the deadline by a year next year or something. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like a strategy of, of hoping that someone else will save you and, um, you know, that, that, uh, that Israel will pull through and it just, it just hasn't worked out for him. Um, and he's, he's so connected, disconnected from the public that it's kind of hard to, mm -hmm. to build up that, you know, popular protest that, that might actually be more of a challenge to Israel than, than any of the strategies he's put forth forward. Right. We'll, uh, we'll return to that thought in a bit. Uh, and we should say that uh, Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, for all his faults, uh, he's still in power while Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu are out of power. So at least in his mind, he's uh, outlasted both of those adversaries. Uh, but again, we'll see, uh, we'll see how he uses that newfound, say, uh, say freedom and independence from, from those two individuals. Uh, I wanted to pivot slightly to, uh, to Hamas's role in all of this. Uh, so we had the terror attack in the old city in Jerusalem on Sunday. And then yesterday, uh, the Shin Bet, the Israeli internal security agency, uh, announced that it had arrested a, a very significant Hamas network in the West Bank, uh, about 50, 50 operatives that were planning terror attacks in uh, Jerusalem and parts of the West Bank. Uh, most interestingly, some would say, uh, they were also uh, had material and were planning on putting together uh, suicide bomb vests, which is, uh, is a relic of, of the past, a uh, very, very tragic relic of the past. Uh, so it seems like Hamas, at least in Jerusalem and the West Bank, is trying to, to very much uh, escalate and to maintain the war against Israel, while in Gaza, its stronghold in Gaza, uh, it's actually playing a ball and negotiating with uh, with Israel indirectly via the Egyptians and the UN. But Gaza, really, since the May the May War, has been relatively quiet. Uh, 
Uh, and we should mention just by way of context that uh, Hamas took over Gaza in 2007. It kicked out uh, Fatah and the Palestinian Authority and President Abbas from there uh, in, in a violent coup uh, that lasted about six days. So ever since 2007, Hamas has been ruling the Gaza Strip uh, and trying to at least provide for the people there, uh, usually via military escalations with Israel and to try to get economic and financial concessions through that method. Uh, while at the same time, uh, in Jerusalem and West Bank, uh, trying to to plot terror attacks, uh, like the one that was foiled uh, allegedly by the Shin Bet yesterday. So in your mind, Adam, what game is Hamas trying to play here? The, the general rule of thumb uh, among the Israeli security establishment is that Hamas is you know, looking for calm and quiet in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and it wants uh, to to make deals with Israel to improve the economic situation. Um, obviously, there you know th- th- there are escalations, and there was a war in May. Um, but you know that's also in some ways paid off for Hamas because it's been able to extract concessions from Israel um, in terms of country mm-hmm. funding. I think Qatar over the past decade or so has given more than a billion dollars. Uh, you know, if not significantly more than even that to the Gaza Strip uh, in terms of, you know, building infrastructure, handing out salaries, payments to poor families. Um, so uh, in general, it, it does seem that 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 Hamas, uh, um, especially after this war in May, wants to 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 to, to sort of preserve its its most strategic accomplishment, which is um, taking over the Gaza Strip and becoming the ruler. Uh, of that territory, Hamastan, right? As some might say, Hamastan, um, and uh, it's um, you know I, I think keen to, to to see some of these deals with Israel go go through. Um, uh, so far, we've seen like Qatari funds come in for for needy families. I know um, there's still discussions about the salaries um, uh, for Hamas civil servants um, and. Uh, you know, Qatar is also continuing to donate to, um, you know, infrastructure projects in the Gaza Strip. It pays for fuel. It, Qatar yeah. pays for the fuel for the Gaza power plant. Uh, I mean, it's it's supporting uh, Gaza and Hamas, right? And with with, by the way, Israeli acquiescence. I mean, Israel is uh, is supportive of Qatari efforts in in the Gaza. Right. right exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And. Um, Egypt also has a role there, and Egypt actually has dozens of engineers and and sort of uh, construction workers. Uh, I think they're all connected to the Egyptian intelligence services, but they're there on the ground clearing rubble, apparently building roads and contributing to other projects as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, and so, some people say that it's actually useful for for those Egyptian. Uh, workers and officials to be on the ground because uh, this gives an incentive to Hamas not to fire another rocket uh, as long as they're there. Uh, I think Hamas wants, it's always in this whole indirect negotiation with Israel over the past several years, it's hoped that they would evolve from the stage of like rebuilding certain infrastructure projects in Gaza and, um, you know, payments to civil servants to things that are much more significant, like uh, industrial zones being refurbished and and and, and revived between mm-hmm. the border of Israel 
in the Gaza Strip, allowing for, uh, I think, from Hamas's perspective, tens of thousands of uh, of uh, Palestinian laborers in Gaza to go into Israel uh, and to work in construction and agriculture and other sectors. So far, we've seen, I think, uh, 10,000, Israel agreeing to 10,000 permits, uh, which is more than, than, mm-hmm. than it then it's offered, uh, I believe, since Hamas took over in, in 2007. So how do you, so how do you reconcile the strategy vis-a-vis Gaza to what we're seeing in, in Jerusalem and the West Bank uh, every so often? Uh, I mean, surely, to my mind, if there, if that network of Hamas operatives and terrorists had succeeded in in blowing something up in Jerusalem, then wouldn't Israel? find the address back in Gaza, and we might be back to where we were in May? Yeah, so it's it's complicated. The, the other part of that, you know, the West Bank is that Hamas um, has, has sought to sort of ignite the West Bank, or to, to some people might say, to set it on fire. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated equation. Um, I think, you know, there are certain rounds of violence where, you know, Hamas operatives have managed to carry out significant attacks. I, I, can, I remember the, there, there were two brothers from a village uh, near Kobar um, who were affiliated with Hamas, the Barghouti brothers, Saleh mm-hmm. and Asim Barghouti. Uh, they did drive-by right. shootings at bus stops in the West Bank and were able to kill soldiers and civilians, I think including a pregnant woman. Um, right. And, uh, you know, that didn't, as far as I can recollect that, that didn't spill over into Gaza, but obviously in May, the tensions did. Uh, and, you know, there, I'm sure there's concern uh, among the Israeli security establishment that if something does escalate in the West Bank, uh, there could be consequences for Gaza or Hamas could feel that, you know, it, it needs to fire a rocket towards Jerusalem again. But I think Hamas at this point in time is reticent to to take such a bold step because it really wants to see the the reconstruction process move forward. Uh, And it's also facing a lot of pressure from Egypt and Qatar and the UN and and others in the international community. Um, You know, it was just labeled as uh, its political and military wings. Uh, I think its military wings previously labeled by the British government as a terrorist group, but its political wing was also labeled just last week, um, so by the UK. Right. Um, so I, I think that I, I, I'm not sure. Um, sort of an escalation in the West Bank will quickly sort of spill over to Gaza, but um, it's always something to think about. And I mean, it could depend on the symbolism of the the situation. Some people say that back in May, you know, the fact that the Israeli the police had raided the Temple Mount and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, was uh, an emotional and symbolic line that was crossed that sort of, you know, encouraged Hamas to to take that step. Others would argue that, you know, the Al-Aqsa Mosque didn't really play a huge part. It was more, you know, Yahya Sinwar, who's the leader of Hamas in Gaza, had played along mm-hmm. with this, you know, indirect understandings with Israel over time, and he almost was ousted from office in an internal Hamas election, and he wanted to prove his sort of more bellicose credentials. Right. Internal politics. I wanted to shift a little bit to 
what I mentioned at the top, which was, uh, okay, Gaza is run by Hamas, but the West Bank is run by uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinian Authority finds itself these days in uh, an acute financial crisis. Uh, it's over a billion dollars in the hole in terms of its budget for this year. Uh, and like I said, uh, donor countries met last week in, in Oslo, in Norway, uh, to try to find a solution for this, uh, for this financial crisis. Uh, there are three main reasons for, for the PA finding itself uh, in, this, in this dire straits. Uh, number one, just the COVID and the pandemic and lockdowns, uh, as you know, Adam, have impacted the local economy in the West Bank. Uh, number two, uh, donors, donors aren't ponying up like they used to. Uh, so the Arab states, especially the Gulf Arab states, uh, are are giving zero dollars to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the Europeans actually uh, aren't giving that much. I think their aid is supposed to come online next year. Uh, and the U.S., as as most of you may know, uh, is legally uh, banned from actually giving direct budgetary support to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, combine that with the fact that donors just seem a bit fed up with the entire Israeli-Palestinian issue. Uh, so uh, total donor aid, I think, this year for the Palestinian Authority is about $180 million. Uh, that's about a third of what the PA received uh, just last year. Uh, and just by context, it's 85% less aid than what the PA received back in 2008. So the trend line in terms of donor aid very much going down. Uh, and then I would argue the third reason for the financial crisis in the Palestinian Authority is uh, the fact that they've already they've already borrowed pretty much as m much as they can from local Palestinian banks, uh, really to try to get through the pandemic and also uh, the late stage Trump years where there was uh, a lot of uh, friction and bad blood and severing of ties between the Palestinians and Israel. So the banks. Uh, in, in Palestine are themselves tapped out. Uh, the government can't go and, and borrow more money. Uh, Adam, what do you think of the financial crisis? How, how serious should we take it? And, and what could be the consequences of, of this financial crisis actually not, not being resolved? Yeah, so I, I would agree that there, that there is um, a, a serious financial issue. And uh, it certainly is being felt by the Palestinian Authority, but also by the broader Palestinian public. Um, I would only provide the caveat that, you know, the economy has always been very weak in the West Bank, and the PA has mm -hmm. always struggled to sort of shore up its budget. And to uh, there have been points in time where they, it's attracted more donor aid than, the, uh, than others. Um, back in 2011, I think, the PA received maybe a, a billion or a bit more than a billion dollars in, in, in financial aid. Um, but in recent years, it's, it's kind of tapered off. Um, but, uh, you know, there have been instances where, you know, the largest part of the PA's budget uh, is the, the taxes, the custom taxes uh, that Israel collects on behalf of the PA at ports. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's refused to and transfers and then transfers that money to the Palestinian Authority. Right. And so Israel collects the taxes and then transfers it. Right. And there have been times in, in an act of protest that the Palestinian Authority has refused to take those funds. There's all, there also have been times when Israel has um, protested a Palestinian move, especially when they're mm -hmm. trying to 
you know, um, lash out at Israel and international institutions or join international institutions under the name of the state of Palestine, you know, that Israel's withheld those funds. So it's the PA has been in, you know, with, without 70 percent of its budget, you know, it's it's been in a very uh, dire strait. But there's always whenever that had happened, there was always the prospect that eventually they were going to get that money and they would have, you know, uh, some sort of economic windfall um, uh, on the horizon. Uh, the, the troubling part here is that uh, you have um, donor aid has significantly fallen off, um, even though it's been tapering off over the past many years and it's not closer to that a billion number that I mentioned in 2011. It's always been in the hundreds of millions. Uh, but this past year, um, it's especially because the, the European Union hasn't turned over anything. Um, it's, I believe, less than $100 million uh, in support for the PA budget. There's some development funding that's been passed along for development projects, but I think with the exception of the World Bank and a payment from Norway and a few others, the budget has, hasn't received much support, and that's what pays sort of the, the PA civil servants and security officers' salaries. That's what pays for a lot of you know, the cars and keeps the, the engine running. Um, <laughs> of the of the Palestinian Authority, exactly, and so there's that. Then you have like the 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 tax transfers from Israel. Those have actually stayed relatively stable. Um, Israel is mm-hmm. cutting into those funds through a law that was passed, I believe, back in 2017 or 2018, that uh, takes a portion of those funds and withholds them. Uh, equivalent to the amount that the Palestinian Authority pays to the families of prisoners, including prisoners who have masterminded attacks against Israelis, including suicide bombings and stabbings and others, um, as well as payments that are made to the families of slain assailants. Um, mm-hmm. So even though that, that, fund, that, the, that those funds have been cut into, it's relatively stable and the PA is you know, able to hold on to it. Then there's the the local revenue, which is like property tax and income tax, um, that's also been relatively stable. So the question is, is what's the issue here? Um, as you mentioned, the banks, I think the banks are feeling a lot of pressure right now. Um, the Palestinian Monetary Authority sets a limit for how much the banks can lend. They've crossed that limit, mm-hmm. but the Palestinian, mon- like the governor of the Monetary Authority is allowed to you know, go through each individual bank and see how many deposits they have, you know, what their assets and liabilities are and determine whether or not they can lend. Banks like, they like to, even though like, you know, it's, it's um, the PA is constantly coming to them. In some ways, they also like giving loans to the Palestinian Authority because usually they're short-term loans. They can charge interest. Um, there's some sort of guarantee because they believe the international community in Israel and the United States don't have an interest in the Palestinian Authority's collapse. They see it as a bulwark right. against Hamas. They're probably going to get paid back in the end. So, but the banks are feeling pressure. And I recently spoke to some of the bank heads and some of them were expressing their reservations to me about uh, giving loans to the Palestinian Authority. Um, there's also immense debt to the private sector. So, you know, the PA has lots of contracts with the private sector. Um, there is a, an interesting mm-hmm. example of this at the start of the school year. Um, the 
education minister, uh, someone named Marwan Awartani, um, who actually used to be a Cornell professor, uh, by the way. Um, he uh, gave a press conference and he said in the press conference that um, some of the books that needed to be printed for students wouldn't be immediately available because the, the printers in the West Bank um, were saying that they were owed so much debt that they don't have enough um, uh, funds to buy raw materials to print books. And they were demanding that the hmm. PA pay them uh, a certain amount of money, some millions of shekels in order to be able to print them books. And I think a lot of the books that students in the West Bank needed at the beginning of September weren't delivered until the latter half, um, until the PA sort of found money to, to pay to the, the printing presses. Um, you know, there's a similar situation with uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, you know, they're owed tens of millions of, of, of shekels um, uh, by, by the Palestinian mm -hmm. Authority. Um, also the construction, number of the construction companies and contractors, uh, and the list goes on. Um, so, you know, there's that debt, the banks are, 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 are feeling queasy about the situation. Um, you know, the foreign aid is falling off. Uh, and, you know, obviously it's the pandemic and, and, and the, the, you know, and overall it's just a difficult situation. So the right. PA is looking to sort of fill the gap by bringing in more donor funds. Um, but I should mention that, you know, I spoke to the former head of the Palestinian Monetary Authority a couple months ago, maybe like two months ago. His name's Azam Ashawa. And he was saying that, you know, maybe a, a key part um, uh, of this equation that sort of helped the Palestinian economy get through all these difficult periods is, is all the workers uh, that go to Israel. Um, I think there's something like 140,000 that work in the settlements or in Israel are, uh, you know, um, in Israel without permits. Um, and he said, those people are, they're bringing money into the economy. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily affected by the political situation. Um, and just having them bring in that fixed amount of money has, has, has really allowed the con economy to kind of move forward. And then the one other thing I was going to mention is, you know, some people would say, like, uh, I, I spoke to a professor of economics at Birzeit University, and he was saying, you know, the Palestinian economy is hurting. That's true. But the Palestinian Authority is also a very inefficient government. And, you know, if they're mm -hmm. facing this economic crisis, why aren't they, um, you know, uh, stopping raises and promotions? And, you know, why are they buying new cars? Um, what, right. know, why, why, why aren't they going? You know, he told me that there's some uh, employees uh, of the Palestinian Authority who are people living in Europe who aren't even working for the Palestinian Authority anymore, but somehow their name is still on the payroll and they're getting a check. Um, and he said that, you know, if the PA really wants to get serious about, you know, uh, shoring up its budget, um, it ought to, to have auditors come in and, and go through its payroll um, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's expense sheets and cut the fat. Right. And he said, it'll, they'll save lots of money, uh, and probably more than donors will, will give them. Um, so, I mean, that's the other, the other sort of, uh, side to this. Right. Uh, and we should mention that the donor conference last week, uh, best I can tell from my contacts and also just, uh, published reports, uh, didn't quite 
resolve this uh, Palestinian financial crisis. That it didn't seem like the donors uh, actually stepped into the breach and and made up that shortfall. Uh, the sentiment, at least what I've heard coming out of uh, the Oslo conference, was that well, uh, the Palestinian Israelis are are finally talking, and that's a good thing. Uh, they, amongst themselves, should actually find solutions for this because, uh, as we said at the top, uh, the stability of the Palestinian authorities is a major Israeli interest. Uh, if Palestinian Authority civil servants, including security forces, don't get paid uh, late this year and early into next year, that is a concern. Uh, people need to get paid. That that helps stability. Uh, it helps calm. Uh, and really, uh, we've seen this last week, uh, the biggest promoters and lobbyists on behalf of the Palestinian Authority in the international arena uh, are the Israelis. Uh, so that might come as a surprise to some listeners. Uh, I don't think it, it's a real surprise to you, Adam. Yeah. Um, you know, often it's, it's ironic because like, you know, the Israelis passed this law a couple of years ago that cuts into the Palestinian budget for these payments that they obviously oppose. And, uh, you know, these controversial payments to the families of slain assailants and prisoners, uh, but um, at the same time, it's sort of lobbying the U.S. government and others uh, to make sure the aid comes in because the PA is obviously a, a source of stability uh, when when it's compared with Hamas. Um, and Abbas, right. for all of his faults, is someone who's principally committed to, to nonviolence and uh, I think, you know, even this, despite comments he's made here and there, you know, I think he's shown that security cooperation is important to him to fight Hamas. But, you know, he's willing to go on the record uh, at times and to, to affirm that, you know, he believes that, you know, nonviolence and negotiations are the way forward. Mm -hmm. um, so right. uh, to his credit. Yeah. Um, so you that's a good transition. Uh, to our next segment, uh, which is Ask the Forum, where we solicit letters uh, from our listeners. You can write in to policypod at ipforum.org uh, with any questions that uh, are of interest to you and what you're curious about, and we'll pick the good ones and, uh, and address them in future episodes. Uh, we've received a few questions uh, in the past few weeks, Adam, uh, and this won't come as a surprise to you, uh, it's a question that we deal with a lot as people who follow and cover Palestinian politics, and that is uh, what happens after Mahmoud Abbas exits the stage, either politically or more likely biologically. Uh, what happens after Mahmoud Abbas dies? Uh, who will take over as Palestinian president? So uh, obviously this is a question that at least I get asked a lot. I, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot too. Uh, I don't know if there's a definitive answer, uh, but what do you think in terms of the the hours and days and weeks and months after Mahmoud Abbas dies? Uh, we get a phone call, uh, let's say later tonight, that uh, that the old man, as he's now referred to in the Palestinian system, uh, has gone. What happens? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. It's 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 interesting because. You know he's he's so old. I think this question's been asked probably for the past ten years. I remember writing an article, uh, I think six or seven years ago, uh, titled "The Looming Palestinian Succession Crisis," <laughs> and that was six or seven years ago. And uh, it's still a relevant question, right? You know, Abbas is old, and he's definitely slower, and uh, he seems to be in 
less of a, a good state of health, but you know, I wouldn't be shocked if he survived uh, another four or five years. Um, maybe, maybe another U.S. president or another Israeli prime minister. <laughs> Possibly, um, he may he may have the last word for all we know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he may he may outlive you and me, Adam. <laughs> uh, that might be a, a long shot, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, probably probably not likely. But. Uh, in any case, it's 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 still an important question. Um, it, it's a hard one to answer. I don't know if there's a clear answer, um, at least institutionally. Um, you know, the Palestinian Authority's basic law says that when the president dies, the Speaker of Parliament is appointed as the interim president until elections are held. Um, and I believe it's for 60 days. And that happened in, in 2000. And, Five, when Arafat died, someone named Rauhi Fatuh, who's like a Fatah Central Committee member, um, was appointed interim president. He was Speaker of Parliament at the time, and later Abbas was elected. But the key issue is that he was a Fatah member, and now the the Speaker of the dissolved-slash-defunct Palestinian Parliament is uh, is a Hamas member. Right, so so the, the last Speaker of the Parliament was a Hamas member, Aziz Dwayk, um, from Hebron, uh, but Abbas uh, dissolved that parliament. And as far as mm-hmm. the Palestinian Authority is concerned, uh, those people um, are no longer members of parliament. The, there are no members of parliament. Um, the elections that never happened, uh, that were supposed to happen, but ultimately didn't in May, was supposed to address that issue. But there is so so there is no parliament, so no one really knows, you know, who would be appointed that interim president. Um, some say the PLO might gather and and make some sort of decision, or the Fatah Central Committee, um, you know, and appoint a certain interim leader. Uh, others have thought a boss might appoint a vice president while he's still in office, and you know they could change a law to say that the vice president becomes the um, interim president. Um, but I think which hasn't which hasn't happened right it hasn't happened and it doesn't seem like a boss wants to do that because once he does that all the attention will shift from him to to this other person um, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's it's hard to know um, that doesn't mean that you know no one's thinking about this issue I think all the top members of Fatah the ruling party in the West Bank um, are looking uh, you know to to seek support from different cadres in different camps. Um, some are looking to present themselves as a presidential candidate. Uh, mm-hmm. Rajub, Jabril Rajub and Hebron is an example. Marwan Barghouti, who's um, in Israeli prison. Uh, he was convicted by an Israeli court on five counts of murder for um, mm-hmm. uh, attacks that occurred during the Second Intifada. Uh, he's consistently polled as the most popular potential candidate uh, uh, in, in in various polls over the years. Um, there's mm-hmm. Mohammed Dahlan, who's an exiled leader and uh, someone who's a rival of Abbas, who certainly, you know, sort of is trying to market himself as a possible uh, presidential candidate. Uh, he hasn't come out and said, I want to be president, but, um, uh, you know, it's clear... It's almost implied. Yeah, exactly. And there are others, um, you know, who are, are trying Mahmoud Al-Alul. To, right, Mahmoud Al-Alul, who's close to different 
members of like the Fatah cadres and, and the sort of like the, the different um, local leaders of Fatah throughout the West Bank. Um, and someone who was a militant back in the day uh, before the Oslo Accords and, and, and when Fatah was in, engaged in armed conflict with Israel. Um, so mm-hmm. there's a whole host of candidates. There's others that are trying to sort of stand behind certain candidates, uh, but it's really hard to know, you know, who's going to be able to pull through in the end. Um, uh, it's hard. It's not, it's not cl- like Abbas was one of these founding members of Fatah. He was a prime minister. He played a key role in the Oslo process. Um, he was seen as like kind of this larger than life figure that could step into Arafat's shoes. Um, but I don't know if you really have someone uh, today who fills that role, who's an obvious uh, next leader. Uh, I think you have a lot of people that are very much trying to promote themselves as that person. And the question is, is are they going to come together and reach some sort of consensus about who should be that next leader? Or is Fatah going to dissolve into infighting and, you know, potentially right. as some have warned, uh, you know, some security analysts have warned like uh, armed conflict between, you know, the Jabril Rajub camp and the Taufik uh, Tarawi camp and the uh, Majid Farage camp and so on and so forth, so, so, uh, so forth. Um, but it's hard to tell. And I always say anyone who says they know who the next Palestinian president will be, I, I wouldn't trust uh, what they're saying. <laughs> right. Uh, as one uh, senior former Palestinian official told me when I asked him this question again a few years ago, he said, well, uh, the next Palestinian president will be uh, a man and he will be a Palestinian nationalist. <laughs> so that's uh, that's the extent of, of that answer. Uh, but but it's good to to raise this issue. Uh, it's an issue that both uh, Israeli analysts and uh, Palestine observers talk about all the time, uh, as well as obviously, you know, people involved in, in Palestinian politics themselves and outside observers. But uh, but it is a concern because, like you said, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, for all his faults, uh, did actually consolidate power uh, around him after Yasser Arafat passed away. Uh, he did, uh, after really after the fall of Gaza in 2007, reinstituted uh, law and order in the West Bank. Uh, he plays ball with Israel in terms of security coordination and, and tries to keep the West Bank relatively calm. Uh, he's he's for diplomacies, for negotiations with Israel. Uh, it's an open question to my mind whether uh, his successor will be committed to all or some of those things. Uh, so remains to be seen. Adam, uh, our last segment is Curation Corner. Uh, As I've said before, there's lots of content out there, and what we like to do every week is to highlight our favorite recent articles or books or TV shows, really any piece of content that we think our listeners should check out. My pick uh, for this Thanksgiving week is uh, a recent piece by our friend Mati Friedman, who's an Israeli-Canadian journalist based in Jerusalem, and he just wrote a fantastic cover story for Smithsonian Magazine for their December 2021 issue. Uh, it's called An Archaeological Dig Reignites the Debate Over the Old Testament's Historical Accuracy. And then it goes on to describe the article as Beneath a Desert in Israel, a scholar and his team are unearthing astonishing new evidence of an advanced society 
in the time of the biblical Solomon. Uh, I'm not going to do this article justice. Uh, it's a fantastic read all about archaeology and Holy Land archaeology and biblical archaeology and also the the hunt for the legendary King Solomon's mines and it goes back to the uh, the Jewish kingdoms of Solomon and David and also the Edomite kingdom uh, that was around during that time. Uh, really, really encourage people to read this article as you're munching on leftover turkey sandwiches either Friday or Saturday morning. And we'll have a link to Mati's piece uh, in our episode notes and online. Adam, what do you have for our listeners? Yeah, so my pick, uh, it's, um, I think there was a really interesting piece of journalism I saw this week. Uh, Gal Berger, who's the head of the Palestinian Affairs Desk at the uh, Khan News, which is the Israeli public broadcaster. He traveled to Jericho, um, which is in, in contrast to Janine, you know, the, you know, where we've talking about, where we've spoken about clashes and conflict in recent days, is usually a quieter place um, where, you know, tourists will often visit and uh, Palestinians throughout the West Bank like to spend their weekends in resorts and, um, you know, uh, walled off homes with pools and so on and so forth. So Gal went there with a group of Israeli tourists um, mm. who, for the first time in a long time, uh, visited the, the Palestinian-controlled part of Jericho. Uh, they went to the cable car that brings them up to the Mount of Temptation. Um, and, you know, they visited other historical sites in Jericho, including Hisham's Palace, which is, um, uh, I believe, uh, it's an old mosaic um, that's, uh, you know. Right, a, a massive, massive floor mosaic. Yeah. Which is supposed to be stunning. Yeah. Um, I think uh, um, it, it, uh, it's centuries old. It's, um, I think, maybe the largest floor mosaic uh, that's, been refurbished in the West Bank. Um, it's uh, a really impressive site. But he went there with Israeli tourists and you know people speaking Hebrew, uh, eating at a Palestinian restaurant in Jericho, uh, and it was a different side to to sort of what we generally might expect, uh, um, and showed that you know even amid all this conflict and turmoil, a war in May, um, there's you know, a group of right. Israeli tourists uh, who, you know, many of whom probably haven't entered a Palestinian-controlled part of the West Bank ever or, you know, in a very long time are able to interact with Palestinians to learn a little bit about their culture and history and the history of the place. Um, and it was uh, a unique circumstance and perhaps uh, um, a sign that, you know, the Israeli government and the security establishment wants to look for ways to um, help the Palestinian tourism sector uh, amid this pandemic in which it's difficult for tourists from the outside to to come in, uh, you know, um, to, to Israel. Especially to a place like Jericho, which is so reliant on tourism. Uh, I also saw this uh, this piece by Gal. I thought it was uh, really well done and really interesting. Uh, Israeli tourists haven't really visited Jericho since uh, the outbreak of the first or the second Intifada, rather, 
in the early 2000s. Uh, and as some of you may remember, Jericho was a site of, uh, of the Oasis Casino uh, in the 1990s at the height of the peace process, uh, very popular with uh, Israeli gamblers, and that was shuttered uh, at the start of the Second Intifada. Uh, it has not reopened, uh, but it is interesting to see Israeli tourists uh, feel comfortable and also for the Israeli security establishment to allow them uh, and the Israeli establishment's comfort level in mm-hmm. allowing these trips back to Jericho. Uh, and hopefully it, it continues and, and things remain calm. Right. Yeah, I remember when I was working for the Jerusalem Post uh, several years ago, we made a trip to Jericho with a bunch of the staff, including many of the Israeli members of the staff, and uh, I assume a number of them hadn't been into a Palestinian-controlled part of the West Bank uh, in years, if not ever. And uh, we had like three Palestinian police cars escorting us to a meeting with uh, Jabril Rajoub, uh, who met mm-hmm. us in in, in, in Jericho. Um, but you know, even for reporters, you know, we had this escort. But you know, now you see this bus, you see the Israelis walking around speaking Hebrew out in the open it was a scene that you typically don't um uh, expect to see uh on an average weekend in a palestinian city yeah right and as as gal reported he was interviewing local palestinians and all of them to a person said you know come come visit we have nothing against the israelis uh everyone should should be able to uh to feel safe uh, coming here and uh, and spending their shekels, obviously, in their stores and restaurants. Yeah. Uh, Adam, before we finish, uh, I'd like to thank Jacob Gilman, uh, who produces this podcast, and also to all of you uh, who support Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast, You Know Who You Are. Uh, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, a happy and healthy and restful Thanksgiving to everyone celebrating this week, uh, including to you, Adam. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Take care.